welcome to um, Mental Health TV. We're really pleased to see you today. Um, it's not our normal night, obviously Tuesday. Um, so first of all, let me introduce you to some of my favourite people actually. I'm, I'm sure that you'll enjoy hanging out with us as much as I like them. So uh, first of all, I'll start with my lovely colleague, Vanessa. Hello everybody, Vanessa Garrity, mental health nurse, um, like Nikki. And um, I'd be co-presenting with Nikki, but also um, covering the social media. So we'd love it if you got involved in tonight's conversation. You can get involved either on Twitter by following MHTV hashtag. Any questions you've got, we'll try and feed into the discussion. Or you can join us on Facebook Live by liking the Unite MHNA page and commenting on the live thread. Oh, brilliant. So tonight we're going to be talking about LGBTQ plus issues um, and mental well-being and celebrating Pride Month. So can I introduce you to my lovely colleague, Sarah? Hello, I'm Sarah Carr and I suppose I'm a service user survivor researcher um, and an academic and I work at the University of Birmingham. There's lots of different things at once. I love that. We're getting real yeah. good value. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Alfonso? Hi everybody, uh, I'm Alfonso Pezzella and I'm, I'm a lecturer at Middlesex University. Yeah, and, I'm a, and a, a researcher as well. Absolutely. So I think maybe let's start off by thinking about Pride Month. So um, it's hashtag still we, um, and it's a hashtag intended to sort of evoke that sense of resistance, res, uh, resilience and unity. And I wondered if we could just pop around the panel and find out what Pride means to you. Um, Sarah? Okay, I suppose... Pride, what it means to me is the opposite of shame because LGBTQI plus communities have felt shame. Still, people still do feel shame. And when Pride first originated, I think it must have been in the 70s, um, people were saying we're proud of ourselves and they were taking quite a risk at coming out onto the streets, literally. And uh, in my old age, I, I even remember a Pride people were shouting at us and that wasn't that long ago so I think pride is, is, is an important feeling that people should have. I now have ambivalent feelings towards the, the parade and the festival which of course isn't going on this year because I think it's come quite commercialised from, from, from when I were a lass but I know it's still very very valuable for people. Yeah absolutely. Mm. How about you Alfonso? What's your take on it? I do agree with with Sarah, and I think Pride is a way uh, to be all together, really, and to celebrate um, that we're here and that we exist and that there is some kind of diversity. And it's also a way to celebrate all of the successes that the LGBT community has made over the years. And to me, it's also a way to remember those who have achieved those rights for LGBT people over the years. Uh, but at, at the same time, Pride is also a way to say there's still a long way to go and there's still quite a lot that needs to be done in terms of the LGBT community. Uh, mm. Also, what I, what I would like to say is that Pride, particularly to me, oh, um, I'm obviously a gay man and I was not out uh, until a few years ago, probably, uh, maybe about seven or eight years ago. And Pride was a way to see people that they were there so that I knew I was not alone. Uh, that I knew there were other people like me and they were there if I needed to. So that's what I think Pride is about. It's, it's kind of like um, a voice to tell people, LGBT plus people, say, we're here and you're not alone in this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Vanessa, did you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think just um, to reflect on what everybody said, really. And for me, I, I like the celebratory element. 
I like that um, pride for me, you know, I've got two children, so um, it's a way of starting a conversation with them and it's a way of starting a conversation with everybody. Um, and I know we've talked about um, some of the negative um, aspects in terms of the festival that it's not a one size fits all approach. Not everybody wants to get involved in a pride festival, but you know, I have taken my children along to them, for example, and um, and it's been really good, you know, it's been a good opportunity for them to ask questions and um, and to just have much more like inclusive values, which I think the next generation have anyway, naturally. You know, being a parent, I've noticed, you know, huge changes. Um, my children don't really distinguish as far as sexuality is concerned and as far as thinking about, you know, boys or girls at school and who their preferences are. It just seems, you know, very natural to them now. But yeah, so I would say um, I like the celebratory element and I like the fact that it brings everybody together. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So there's loads of stuff come up already in just this discussion, isn't there, about about the kind of history and how fast that history is changing and in some ways how fast that history is moving on so that some younger generations maybe don't necessarily know all the stuff that's gone on before. Yeah. I think what I um, take from it is that resistance. And also I think for our conversation tonight, we just want to be really clear right from the outset, is to be, is to have um, a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender identity is not link to being mentally ill those things yeah. are separate things that don't cause each other like stigma and appalling behavior and those are the things that we're talking about we're actually looking at this as an identity as a celebration and a, and a way of, of of being well and it's only what 20 odd years since it was taken off of of, of definitions and symptomology for for having a mental health issue so i think it's really important that we say there is this overlapping links and we'll be talking about some of those links later on but also mm -hmm. saying you know this is an opportunity to to celebrate and to learn from each other as well i think can i um come around the the, the different uh, panel members and talk a little bit about some of the um research that you guys have been doing some of the research and learning and teaching so can i come to sarah first sure i mean one of the things that i've done most recently is some with uh, Helen Spandler from UCLan, University of Central Lancashire, is um, some work looking through the archives about how um, lesbian, same-sex attracted women, uh, lesbian bisexual women were treated in the psychiatric system because of their sexual orientation. So sort of reflecting back on what Alfonso was saying about pride, just thinking about the people who've gone before us, um, so yeah, it was an incredibly interesting, quite moving piece of research because I experienced some sort of reparative therapy that I didn't actually ask for um, from a therapist who I went to because I had mental health problems and he decided, well, your mental health problem is your sexual orientation, so let's look at that. So that was a personal kind of motivation for looking at this. So I had a kind of personal connection to the women who I found in the archives. Um, and their stories. There weren't that many um, things that we found, but what we did find was very powerful um, and scattered through the archives. And we were able to piece together some history around women's experiences, which are less documented than men's because of course, men, male homosexuality was criminalized. And there is a kind of paper trail, particularly mm. through the criminal justice system where mm. men were and given either the option of psychiatric treatment or to prison. So there's a lot of documentation about that, but less about women who might have gone through the system. Although 
the period we were looking at, which was from 1950 to 1990, like you were saying, homosexuality, men and women, was to a greater or lesser extent classified as a mental illness or disorder. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Alfonso, what have you been um, researching? How, and how, what have you been up to in terms of your well, work? One of my biggest interests really is about the experience of coming out. Um, so I've done some research in the past around coming out in, in the workplace, for example, uh, but more recently I've got interested in um, doing LGBT teaching research and see how LGBT issues should be implemented into the nursing curriculum, for, for example, and just on what Sarah has said, how um, the NHS workforce, for example, or healthcare professionals don't always know how to treat LGBT people and they don't always understand their, their needs. So one of my research at, at the moment, it's an EU project that I'm doing with six other countries across Europe. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at how, how to develop a culturally competent and compassionate LGBT inclusive education. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at this from a cultural competence point of view as well, because in those countries who are partners in my project, LGBT is not even allowed to talk about. So for example, we have Italy and we have places like um, in, in Romania where these issues are not even covered in any of the curriculum, not even in their personal lives. So it's very important that we build on to this knowledge and make sure that there is a more a uniform EU model almost to teach LGBT issues to the future mm -hmm. workforce. Mm -hmm. It's interesting if you look at what, what Sarah was looking at to what you're looking at. It's, it's such a short space of time that we've come from considering this to be an illness and considering actually not attending to this part of people's lives as something that's going to make people ill. You know, it's a huge, huge jump. And I think in some ways we're getting it much better much, much better, and we're dealing with it much better. But in other ways, there still seems quite a lot of uneven practice around how we're managing this stuff. Um, did Did you look at um, LGBT in care homes as well? Were you on that project? Uh, I was. Uh, I wasn't on the project myself, but mm. I was working closely with a colleague who uh, was working um, on this project in care homes. And we did also another side project called Being Me by, mm -hmm. led by Professor Trish um, Hufford Letchfield. And mm -hmm. we looked at, um, at coming out for older people, for example, and the needs of older people as well. Because I think that ties in a little bit with what Sarah was saying as well, in that if you've got people who have had that experience of being really appallingly treated and stigmatized, and then coming out and then finally getting to a stage where maybe um, they're using care home facilities or they're needing extra support at home and all of a sudden they're being given care by people whose personal faith experiences or just lack of knowledge means that they just are not thinking. So I mean it's bad enough that people don't consider older adults sexuality or sexual needs or just um, sexual sense of self but how mm. I, I worry a lot that people are you know pretending that you know their long-term partner is their sister or their friend or their brother or enough and so shameful. And it's, it's shameful on us for not getting it right and not having, you know, conversations that, that are sensitive and thoughtful. I think, mm. Vanessa, did you have um, some questions coming through on social media? Yeah. Just a moment. It's just um, a comment from Rebecca Bevington on Facebook, and she said, 
Um, love how all your definitions of pride are really different, but all totally important aspects of it. For me, pride means being seen. I suppose that links into all of your different perspectives. Mm. So, any thoughts on on that? It's a lovely comment, isn't it? Mm. I think you've got to have that plurality, haven't you? You've got to allow people to experience their life the way that they do. And a lot of the problems that we encounter are from people deciding for other people who they are or what they need. And that's bizarre. Mm. Bizarre thing to do. It's not healthy. Mm. So thinking about... Um, some of the, the research and some of the teaching that's been that, that Sarah and Alphonse have been doing. Um, is there anything we can sort of learn from that in terms of our own practice, in terms of if you have to give like advice for practitioners in any settings, what things can they do to actually be helpful, to be supportive? Do you want me to no, no, Alphonse, go for it. Yeah. I mean, when when we talk about health and social care practitioners or educators, I mean I'm sure that they all uh, they all want to do the best for their service users, and we as educators we teach them to do the best. We teach all about dignity and respect and compassion, and we build that into them. But when it comes to LGBT um, needs and issues, we don't actually do enough for this. We don't actually do enough in terms of making our own curriculum more inclusive and having more role, uh, LGBT role models for. for for examples, but also we don't actually teach anything like inclusive language. Uh, as you said, Nikki, if if you see, for example, a trans person and you're not quite sure, maybe you 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 will call them he or she, and that can be very upsetting for a person. Uh, at the same time, if you see two um, male couple together, like me and 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 my partner, for example, we've been. Um, called brothers, cousins, everything apart from actual couple and saying you are boyfriends or, mm. or fiance. So it's mm. very important to teach this to our own students, for example, and to teach more inclusive language, what language they should be using. Um, so that's one start, for example, but it's also about role modeling. So it's about sharing the experiences with our students and show them that LGBT people are very much present in the society. and. This is a word that I hate, but it's it's normal. It's normal to be gay, and uh, it is the normality. So students should just learn and and accept it in a way. Uh, I don't know if Sarah wants to add anything else onto that. No, I think they're all very very good points. And just thinking back to my research and and the theme of resistance, it's I think it's important if we're thinking about mental health care and support to see that in the historical context. So, you know, research shows that psychiatric treatment of LGBT people that happened decades ago, there's a problematic legacy there for mental health services today. And it's very important to understand how that legacy might play out in current practice. Um, so like you were saying, there's, there's kind of an, uneven, an unevenness in people's uh, experiences. Um, I remember doing some work years ago on um, mental health and social care and LGBT people's experiences of it and trying to educate social care workers about some of the issues you were talking about, Alfonso. And um, we wrote a paper, myself and a colleague, called It Shouldn't Be Down to Luck. And I think it still is quite down to luck who you encounter in, in, the, in the health 
or social care context. And I think you're saying training and education is incredibly important for addressing um, that issue of luck, whether or not you get somebody who is accepting and supportive or somebody who thinks um, you're in some way unwell or inferior just because of who you who you love or what your gen gender identity is. Mm. I think it's really important as well. Well, go on. What are you going to say, Vanessa? I was just thinking, reflecting on the Black Lives Matters, really, and, and, you know, the sort of similarities around white privilege as well, that, you know, people will say, you know, that they're not homophobic and they're not discriminatory. Um, but a lot of it is um, is structural, isn't it? And if you, if you know, you know, like a white person speaking from a white person's perspective will never really understand um, you know what it's been like to experience racism simply because of the color of your skin and it's a similar thing and kind of um, you know like we talked about student nurses for example might be if they've never you know experienced any prejudice they might not think it's an issue and in some ways that can invalidate your experiences even more so I think it's been aware that it's not we're not just talking about people who have been um, you know really um, overtly discriminatory abusive homophobic but actually um, people having that empathy and um, and looking at sort of the structural systems and where they can communicate. And the other thing for me is the whole echo chamber of, of Twitter, for example. So we go on Twitter and um, and we're all quite we're all from a fairly similar demographic. So within that community, um, particularly in the health community, you know, we're all much more accepting, more liberal, more open, more left wing usually. Um, but actually, if you step out of that community and, you you know, you, you see what's going on in other communities sometimes, and this is my personal experience, you can be shocked, you know, by the prejudice that still exists. So you can lull yourself into a completely false sense of security with it. So I think it's important to, you know, step outside that as well and have conversations with different people and different communities rather than always preaching to the converted, which I think we might might do sometimes, have conversations with people who have similar values to us and how do we actually have conversations with people who've got very different views and how do we know they've got different views if they're not openly talking about them, but they might be discriminatory in the way they're behaving or, you know, um, you know, think you know if they're an employer of a work organisation, and um, in terms of who they recruit into organisations or how people are treated, who's promoted, you know, all those kind of things. So yeah, it was just a, a reflection on that really as you were talking. Well, I think both of you guys have um, done teaching sessions for kind of corporations and corporate organisations. Have you got anything you'd like to to share back about that experience? Mm. You don't have to. <laughs> That's interesting. Sarah, you want to start? Yeah, I think one of the challenges for teaching and, and learning is, I think Alfonso knows a lot about this, to create a kind of a supportive space so people can explore their attitudes and beliefs without necessarily being challenged in a, in a particularly unhelpful way because I'm I accept now and although you know it's it's kind of difficult sometimes that people might want to ask me questions and uh, they're not coming from a bad place they're just genuinely curious because they might not ever have met one of those before <laughs> and um, so you know it's it's about having giving people the space to be able to have those conversations yeah. Um, because then, you know, if people work out some of their attitudes and some of their um, kind of misconceptions or prejudices, 
in the classroom, we might be equipping them to give better care and support on the front line um, because they might not come across, suddenly come across a, an older gay couple who, you know, are very shocking to them because they've never worked that out in, in, a, in a different environment. Yeah. Alfonso? Um, yeah, I very much agree that uh, it needs to be a very safe space also for people to um, say actually what, what they think, because that's the only way that they can actually say their views and we can then unpack them a little bit to those views. Uh, I did the research, but if, if, if we go back to the corporate environment, I, I did the research a few years ago, uh, looking at coming out in the workplace. And I found that uh, L LGBT people who wish to come out to their colleagues, it's a journey, it's a totally different journey for them because there is a lot of micro ag um, aggression in the workplace where people don't even realize that they're doing it. Things like banter, for example, comments like uh, who's the man and who's the woman in a same-sex um, couple. And so there is quite a lot of stigma in the workplace, particularly, particularly in some environments and of course, we know that we have laws to protect. We have the Equality Act. We have the workplace policies. But unfortunately, those policies um, are there, but they're not always enforced in a way. They're not very much visible in the way that we would hope that they are. Uh, so there is a lot in terms of coming out in the workplace. And it's very much of a choice of the person whether or not to come out. And the training I do, and I did some training with, with Sarah as well, we, again, we talk about inclusive language. We talk about the history of mental health. We talk about how the employer can be a better ally, a better inclusive environment for LGBT people, because LGBT people in particular are even scared that if they do say that they're gay, maybe they're going to lose their job. Maybe they, they're, they're not, they're going to be pre prevented from things like promotions and so on. So it's very important that the employer and the corporate environments uh, need to come together and create those inclusive environments for LGBT people as well. Mm. Can, can either one of you um, clarify what you mean by microaggressions for maybe people who haven't heard that term before? So mm. microaggression, um, I'll try to explain it as best as I can and maybe Sarah can add on to it, uh, is when there is um, things like the derogative comments, um, which is it's very subtle form of aggression. It's not, um, in a way, it's not physical, but it's like those banter, those jokes, uh, comments. Uh, as, as I said before, even comments like in the workplace, some of my participants reported things like, oh, there is no real men um, in, this, in, in, in this workplace. So it's comments like this that we call macroaggression. It's jokes and banters. I don't know if Sarah wants to add anything or well, I'll just pick up on what you were saying earlier on that you're you and your partner sometimes people mistake you for siblings or say oh is that your brother now I've had that in the past until my partner changed the color of her hair <laughs> now no problem not are you sisters are you twins um but I, I found that to be a, a microaggression in some sense and it gets so sort of tiring as well and also you know the idea of visibility you just think oh god Will, do I have to be clear about this person that this is my partner, not my sister? And you just kind of give up sometimes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that that I, I agree that we do have to deal with these sometimes subtle, sometimes overt microaggressions, which just weigh you down mm -hmm. um, as well as the bigger stuff. 
suppose it's like we're talking about that kind of white privilege again, isn't it? If you yeah. if you belong to a dominant group, you slide mm-hmm. through life. Yeah, and dominant uh, and um, microaggressions just constantly being caught, constant mm-hmm. paper cuts, and it it, mm-hmm. it's, it sounds exhausting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one thing I would say about the kind of teaching, you know, is I think it, it can be an issue when people from certain groups are called to educate everybody else about themselves. Yes, I don't think that's terribly fair. Um, mm-hmm. And I think everybody who's who's involved in sort of teaching and learning should be actually pulling their weight on this and role modelling. Um, support and acceptance and just mm. just plain manners if you can't be decent <laughs> I mean, please just be polite because we've got really clear guidance in our NMC code of conduct these things are not acceptable and I think yeah. one of the things that I first found distressing when I was teaching was um, every single year I can't get through an academic year without somebody at some point saying something like um, am I able to say that I don't want to work with gay people Oh, or can I, you know, and, and it's kind of like conscientious objection. You're like, no, that's not a thing. It's not a thing. And and I find that because you forget and all of a sudden it draws you up short that someone would think or say that and be so naive that they think after you've already taught them the Equalities Act, after you've already talked about the importance of professional behaviour, that that's still something that could be genuinely a question that you would want to ask publicly in the classroom. You know, just such such a level of naivety. Um, I think one of the weirdest things that ever happened to me. I was um, I was teaching um, in practice areas with a, a colleague who was married to a woman, a female who was married to a woman, and um, somebody said to her in the teaching session, "What do lesbians do?" And she said, completely forgetting that the level of I would say even innocence here. She said, oh, you know, well, we 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 love shopping, we go horse riding. And I was like, oh no, that's not what she's asking. <laughs> we just had this really awkward moment. But her understanding of like what it means to be her is here. And this other person is looking at her like she's an alien, parachuted in from another planet. And you sometimes have to, I think if you are teaching this stuff, you have to get get to a place where you are emotionally okay to deal with naivety as well as cruelty because they can often hit people at the same level and they it's not like teaching blood pressure i'll just say that you know you don't you don't end up having to deal with the same kind of um harms i think and i think for anyone who's who's thinking oh yeah absolutely i want to do inclusivity teaching i want to do all that stuff i think it's really important just to mention that particularly if you're working with somebody who identifies as lgbtq plus it's important to be sensitive it can also be a very rewarding um, experience, mm. so I have to say I had uh, a little bit of both, uh, but over the past eight years that I've been teaching, uh, after teaching my LGBT classes, for example, or inclusivity, I did have a few students coming up to me uh, very recently, one of them from a different country where being gay is illegal, and they came and talked to me and said, uh, I'm gay, but I don't know how to tell my parents. But he he was telling me how... Uh, this helped him and how he's he's gonna try at least now so it can be a very rewarding experience yeah. as well sharing your your own experience of the teaching and your personal experience into the teaching and it can help lgbt students in particular as well absolutely absolutely i think vanessa has a question for us yeah and it links to some of the things we've talked about really and that's um a question asking for any top tips for nurses that face having to care for people that are discriminating against LGBTIQ plus people. 
Um, so any top tips about um, supporting people in your practice who might be discriminatory? Well, I'll hand over to you guys then. Mm. Anybody? Well, I suppose like Nikki was saying, um, people who work in health and social care are working in services that are um, under the Equalities Act. People have protected characteristics and there are particular uh, mm. professional frameworks and codes of conduct that people need to abide by. And one of those will be um, non-discriminatory and anti-oppressive practice towards LGBT people. Um, and without wanting to be combative, it, it's, you probably have a useful conversation with individuals about, well, we kind of work within these values and, you know, these are the frameworks that our practice is, is should operate within. Um, and having sort of a, maybe a reflective conversation about why why do we have these values? Why do we have these codes of conduct? What's the consequence for the person on the receiving end if you're not very nice to them or if you dismiss them or if you have particular um, views about them that they find hurtful or difficult? And I suppose it's about thinking how those codes of conduct relate to the human encounter at the, at the, at the front line. Um, I don't know if that's useful, but having almost taking the conversation out of being emotional into the professional. Yeah, yeah. So was that was the question about how do you support people if they're if they're a service user who's homophobic, or how do you yeah. deal with staff? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but mm. I think it's about service users. But I think um, ah, sorry, useful. Mm. Look at both. Anyway, it's mm. the both important points, aren't mm. they? I think education takes you so far, doesn't it? In that compassionate listening, but sooner or later. I think there's a really good thing to say for, for nurses. If you cannot be compassionate to other people, mm. go. Go mm. work somewhere else. And that's really awful because we need every single nurse. And I would hate to think that a nurse isn't being used to the best of their capability. But at the end of the day, you can't have um you can't have people hurting each other and you can't have people in professional roles who are who frankly disgrace that professional role. Yeah. And that's not acceptable. Um, I can remember talking to an, an older adult who was quite homophobic in a, in a nursing home who had been um, quite offensive, should we say, to some of the staff. And um, we ended up by saying, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you pay your taxes, you're a citizen of this country, and you are absolutely welcome to be arrested for you being homophobic if you'd like us to call the police. And that was the end of it. Done, dusted, finished. <laughs> so I think after then he was charming. So there's something to be said, I think, for... You know, once you've gone to a certain point, you know, you need to protect the, the protect people in the workplace. And you shouldn't have to be treated in an environment. You shouldn't have to work in an environment that damages you. You know, we spend all this time teaching people how to lift up boxes and things like that. You know, but how you would leave somebody in a situation where they're being stigmatized and frightened and hurt on a on any kind of basis, I think is really unacceptable. And I think one of the things about it's so pernicious is it's the shame of it. You know, so if, if someone is um, abusive to you because of a characteristic of yourself, the colour of your skin, your sexuality, for some reason, the shame doesn't belong with the person who's being dreadful. It can get all over the person who's a victim of that. Mm. So if you have to fill in an instant form and say what somebody said to you or say what how it made you feel or what the impact was, it can be really, it can almost make you feel twice as hurt by it. And then, you know, you get to a point where I think you get a law of diminishing returns. Like, why do I keep filling this in when nothing is happening? 
Yeah. And that I think is not just about sort of homophobia or racism. I think it's about all those times when we don't keep our environment safe. Mm. You can't expect people to, to heal and thrive in an environment that's filled with poison. We don't do it for a wound. Why would we do it for an environment? So I do think you get to a point where you have to tell people professionally and politely with a lovely smile where to get off. Yeah, I think the most um, complex sort of situations I've been in is, is where it's um, issues around transgender. So, you know, being a manager, um, it's quite a long time ago now, maybe 10, 15 years ago. So I think things have moved on. But, um, you know, I did once manage a member of staff who was going through a transition from um, male to female. And, um, and that was a really complex, difficult situation. But we did do lots of work, not just with the staff on, on the ward, because it was on um in a ward situation, but also, you know, with the people who were, um, you know, service users, carers on the ward, other people who worked with the ward as well. And um, and so there was a lot of preparation. However, when the transition happened, um, you know, despite feeling during the preparation that everybody, you know, kind of understood and was fairly educated and supportive about it, the reality was different and there was still a lot of prejudice and stigma. Um, and I think... So that was quite a long time ago, but then, you know, more recently working in prisons, you know, transgender, you know, is is a very complex issue within prisons, particularly mm. around risk. And I feel, for me, it's something that people don't address because they're scared to address it. Um, there's not always an understanding about whether, um, you know, if someone's, you know, male transitioning to female in a female prison, um, sort of how to address the risk. Is there a risk? Um, you know how to kind of separate the crime from from the sort of transgender um, experience. So I think there's still a lot to have work to do in the in those areas as well. Mm. I think we've wandered into intersectionality in a glorious way. <laughs> can you can <laughs> any of us um, sort of nail down what we mean by that? Then we'll have a bash at it when we're talking about intersectionality. What we're we talking about? Well, looking at I mean, Vanessa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nicely done, Alfonso. We're not looking at Vanessa now. <laughs> yeah, so it's obviously from Kimberly Crenshaw, isn't it? And the the concept is that um, if you're um, if you're a black woman, your experience isn't going to be the same as all black women. It's all about the different layers of oppression. So you might be a black lesbian woman. You might be a black lesbian working class woman. Um, so it's about all the different layers of oppression. So for me, um, it became really. Um, a really useful concept when I worked in prisons and um, thinking about the kind of experience that women have in prisons and the experience that men have in prisons because the prison system is designed more around men than it is women but then actually looking um, within a female prison and thinking well actually um, there's there's other layers of oppression so if a woman's a lesbian in, um, in a female prison that brings its own issues if um, a woman's black and some of the sort of institutional racism around, you know, sentencing of black women and, and you know, maybe, um, you know, whether a woman's um, sort of cultural needs are met in prison. So it's, yeah, so for me, that's what it's about. It's looking at all the different layers of oppression that make up a person's identity. So not just looking at um, gender um, or, or the colour of somebody's skin, but looking at, looking at it all and how that might impact on the way a person's treated or a way a person's feels or experiences the world so 
Mm-hmm. I'm not bad. There's but... a lot of nodding. People seem happy with that. <laughs> Does anyone want to add to it? Yeah, please do. Is there anything? No, I think that's exactly it. And the way I explain it to, 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 to students, for example, in a very simple way, is that we are human beings. And as human beings, we are complex. We're not just made of uh, body organs and uh, thoughts processing and so on. We are made of different things, different layers. So I might be white, but I'm also Italian. I'm also gay. I'm also something else and so on. And all of these layers that make me, they uh, intersect with each other and they make the person that I am. And also all of those can have an impact on, on, on one another particularly as well. So how my sexuality can have an impact on the fact that I'm Italian, for example, or the fact that I, I have an accent and so on. I think yeah. as well, the only thing I, I, I would add to that as well is this idea that if you if you take it to its extreme, you can almost see it like a game of gigantic snakes and ladders. So if you are paler, you get a point up. If you work, talk with a working class accent, you take two points down. And and I, I think there's is, to make it even a little bit more complicated, there's this idea as well that you can find strength in a marginalised identity. So being a woman, you know, is not a wholly negative and unpleasant, distressing experience. You know, I have access to a world and a world of experiences which are really empowering and strong and I wouldn't have if I had a different perspective. So I think as well as something about understanding how the different aspects of our personalities make us up, but also the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're talking about a whole month where, we, where we're trying to celebrate a certain aspect of people's personality and, and, and personhood and self. So I think maybe we're coming around again to kind of some of the kind of strength-based stuff, um, looking at maybe resistance, um, looking at maybe some of the things that we can learn from from that. So if you think about the Stonewall riot, then one of the first people to heave a brick was um, a black transgendered woman. So there's a lot of things going on there in terms of, you know, what it means to understand your identity as a source of strength, as, as well as maybe something that other people may have their own opinions on. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that. Mm. Yeah. So what um, could we talk about in terms of resistance? So Sarah, your work has been a lot around sources of resistance as well. And you did work as well on violence and aggression against people with marginalised identities. Mm -hmm. That's right. I mean, I think there's something here in what was being said before about a position on the margins. It can be a position of vulnerability and it can be a position of, of strength as well and I think you referring to the, the Stonewall rights people were right out on the margins literally physically of, of society um, and they'd had enough they just had enough of being thrown into police bands and taken off for what who they were dancing with what clothes they were wearing um, and so you know, somehow it became a collective act of resistance. I often think of all the people bundled in, in a police van thinking we've had enough of this and then somebody did lob a brick or whatever they did. <laughs> and um, so I think that that did mark um, the dawning of, of, of a more um, collective resistance um, towards all kinds of social oppression and discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, which I suppose brings brings us back to the idea of, of pride being a mass celebration and crowds of people together um, 
but yeah, I mean, resistance was very important in terms of getting um, homosexuality as a mental illness out of the uh, DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical mm. Manual, in 1973. Ac activists in America and the UK did extraordinary things to get rid of it. You know, they, they were um, glitter bombing various psych psychological, psych psychiatric um, conferences. They were tearing down stalls with um, electric shock instruments on. And this was in the 70s. So, um, mm. yes, collective resistance did end up with um, the declassification of homosexualities and mental illness. Well, we're still fighting about whether it's appropriate to offer counselling to someone on account of their sexuality, which is mind-blowing when you think we're 2020 and that's still an option. Mm. I find that mm. appalling, shocking. Mm. I, don't know. I don't know if I can be appalled anymore in 2020. I think it's knocked it out of me. It's been such a year. <laughs> I'm not sure I still have the capacity to feel shock. Um, I think, Vanessa, you were saying that you've got a comment perhaps from... Somebody. Yeah, and we've got a couple of comments. We've got one from um, the more comments and questions, I would say. Um, mm -hmm. We've got one from Kazia Gilders. I hope that's pronounced right. And um, that's it's such an important point about the history and legacy of mental health professionals and that we need to acknowledge that more. So I think just acknowledging our discussion, really, because we've talked about that quite a lot, haven't we, this evening? And then the second comment is from Ben Hannigan. Um, and he's um, really congratulating us on the programme and also a comment for Sarah, which is saying um, salutary to hear Sarah say that look still has a, a part to play in getting help as an LGBT mental health service user. So interesting. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a shocker, isn't it, when you think about it? You should be able to pay your taxes and walk in anywhere and get the same treatment as anybody else. Mm. And I think there's something as well about mental health services. If we don't actually really talk about the power issues that exist and have existed, we're never going to move forward. We're never going to get better. We're never going to do better if we don't face up to what's happened and what happens to people sometimes. And if we don't use our own power in a positive way and acknowledge that we have power, because that's mm. what you hear a lot in mental health, oh, we don't have any power, you know, but actually we do have power, whether we're people who don't discriminate or, you know, show prejudice uh, and, you know, we work collaboratively, we still have power when we work mm. with mental health. So, um, mm. and power as individuals, depending on, you know, what we've talked about from an intersectionality perspective. So I think it's also, yeah, it's acknowledging that power, isn't it? And using it positively as well. But sometimes mm. to hear, when I hear that we haven't got power, that's, um, you know, I think that's a naive comment, really. And it can be quite um, negative, really destructive. Mm. I think that kind of takes us around because we're actually nearly at the end of the session. That's gone so fast as usual. Yeah, Thank you very much. Right, yeah. um, so um, we've talked about teaching healthcare, intersectionality, protest, awareness, LGBT equality, uh, people's experiences, mental health services, all sorts of things. So I guess maybe if we think about something to end on, something that um, would be helpful maybe for practitioners to hear um, or helpful for people who are celebrating um, Pride Month to hear, we'll just finish on like last thoughts from people. Can we go to Sarah? I think still it's very important for people to think of their own well-being, mental well-being, because LGBT people, although things have changed since the 70s and when the Stonewall riots first kicked off, and thinking about intersectionality, 
people still have struggles with their sexual orientation and still have kind of experienced distress because of it. And I think we need to recognise that that still goes on. You know, we do have you know, policies that are very positive. We have massive loads of legal reform, which means you can get married and you can adopt children. But there are people living lives the way they're still afraid, where they can't come out. And I think because our society has become more diverse and complex, we do have to think about intersectionality. We have to think about people who are same-sex attracted, um, who are maybe trans, who are coming from not the white majority population. So people from black and minority ethnic communities, people with different cultures, people who may come as refugees. And I think we need to think about well-being and um, maybe mental distress well-being um, in the context of complexity and of intersectionality, but particularly um, mm. the complexity and diversity in the LGBT communities. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, Alfonso? Just want to um, touch on on the process of, of of coming out, which we discussed at the very beginning. And by by by, by coming out, of course, we mean when a person discloses their sexual identity and mm. sexuality. Uh, so we will know that we say that it's a journey to come out. And uh, I like to add that it's a journey that you know when when you're ready to start it. But it's a journey that probably will never end for you. So for L LGBT people coming out, it's almost every day. You have to say every day to a new person, if you're moving house, if you meet new colleagues and so on. So it's something that you keep doing throughout your life. And this can have a very positive or, or negative impact on the person as well. So in terms of coming out, particularly to those who are not there yet, who are not ready to come out because of their cultural identity, because of, of other things as well, that they should understand that it is a journey and when when they are ready it will come natural to them and um it will be evident for them when when it's ready for them to come out or one moment in their life they will have to come out and eventually they they, they will come out and then they can be proud and they can help other people as well to come out and share their their, their, their experiences as well hmm. I love that, yeah vanessa is there anything you wanted to add um I think for me, it's just about what I've already covered. It's about being aware of your own privilege and being aware of when you can be an ally as well. Um, mm. Being a, you know, trying to have empathy um, and understanding what it's like for somebody else, and you know, standing up against discrimination as well. You know, putting your head above the parapet and actually speaking out um, about things as well. You know, is really important. So I think, yeah, that's my message really. If you, you know, even if um, you know this doesn't affect you you know you can help somebody else so you know it's important that we have allies mm. i guess for me just to finish up what i would say is um if you're a nurse it is your job to know about people's sexuality and how to support and help people it is your job to understand terminology and um, to be respectful um, if you make mistakes to apologize and to learn if you don't know, because not every you don't come, and not everyone comes out knowing this stuff, and that's absolutely fine. But don't then just sit there a year later saying I still don't know how to give good service. You mm. wouldn't be out of date with basic life support and then just be like I still don't know how to save your life. Like no, don't come with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
you know, it's your job to find out if you don't know. Always ask somebody. And I would also say as well, if you're by your, if you if you're alone in an experience, if mm. as Alfonso and Sarah were saying, the yeah. experience of being isolated is so devastating to people. And please, please tell someone, find somebody. Mm. People are out there. Yeah. And I think it's been a really interesting discussion. Thank mm. you very, very much to everybody. Just give the heads up to Dave to say thank you so much, as ever, for lurking sinisterly in the background and managing everything. Really, really appreciated. Um, and we're ready to finish now, Dave. Thank you. We count us out. Thank you.